On Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and it's taken us quite a few months to get to the place where we're at in chapter 14, but really we're coming to the end part of the book, aren't we? We're coming to the place now where Jesus is just a few days before his passion, his crucifixion, and of course his resurrection. Let's just jump right into it here. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. It's very important that Mark gives us this indicator that all of this is happening near the time of Passover. Passover, of course, was one of the great feasts of the Jewish nation. They had three or four significant feasts through the year that Jewish people were expected to attend if they lived anywhere near the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, it was a law in the time of Jesus that any Jewish man who lived within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem was required to spend Passover in the city of Jerusalem. But not only people from 15 miles around Jerusalem came, People from thousands of miles away made the trek as pilgrims coming to the city of God for this great feast known as Passover. Passover, of course, remembered Israel's redemption from Egypt. You're familiar with that story, aren't you? Nothing else. You probably saw that movie, The Prince of Egypt, and you saw how God led the children of Israel out of bondage and oppression and slavery from a foreign master in Egypt and led them out to freedom. He raised up a deliverer named Moses and brought them out of that foreign oppression. Well, here, as they uh, were remembering it in the festival of Passover every year, this idea of the Lord's deliverance, of the Lord's victory over a foreign oppressor, was very prominent. It was very strong in their midst. So I want you to understand that because it was Passover and you have thousands of people streaming into Jerusalem, Many estimates say that the population of the city of Jerusalem doubled during the time of Passover. And all these people streaming into the city, and every one of them had a very high sense of what we might call messianic expectation. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Deliverer. They wondered, will this be the year when the Lord delivers us from the oppression of the Romans, just as much as He delivered the people of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians so many years ago that we remember during the time of Passover? So get that sort of picture in your mind. Thousands upon thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem and this idea of, Lord, are you going to show forth your Deliverer At this time, it's very current among the crowds. Well, if the crowds have this great messianic expectation, you find the chief priests and the scribes, if you notice here in verse 1, it says the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Of course, the powerful people are doing what powerful people always tend to do, looking at ways to preserve and to increase their power. And Jesus was a threat to the power of these religious and political and social authorities. And so they said, this man is here, we need to put him to death, but we don't want to do it during the feast. Why? Look at it there in verse 2. Lest there be an uproar of the people. They were afraid of the popular support that Jesus enjoyed at this time. Now let's remind ourselves, just a few days before This uh, time written here in in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, just a few days before, Jesus made what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
thousands of people thronging the road, shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches, welcoming Jesus as a conquering victorious king into the city of Jerusalem. The religious leaders and the scribes looked at that and they said, this man might be trouble for us. We can't go after this man. This man has too much support. He has too much popularity among the crowds. We have to very much temper our reaction against him. Let's wait till after the feast is over. Yet, before we're done here in the chapter or the section of Scripture that we're going to take a look at this morning, we're going to see that these same religious leaders were presented with an opportunity that made them say, no, let's go ahead and arrest him during the feast. So let's take a look at it here. What happens next? Verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at a table. A woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Isn't that interesting? Here you have a contrast, don't you? You have these scribes, these religious leaders, who are dedicated to destroying Jesus. And then now Mark gives us this vignette just a few nights before Jesus' betrayal, just a few nights before his crucifixion, where he's at a dinner at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, we take this to mean that Simon was actually a former leper, someone that Jesus had healed of his leprosy. And Jesus is enjoying a dinner at the home of Simon the leper. And it says there in verse 3 that he sat at the table. Now, please, don't take our own sort of Western, modern understanding of what that means, as if they sat with tables and chairs just like you and I might at a dinner, because that's not how they sat at a table for dinner in the ancient world at this time. No, they didn't sit on a table and, and, and eat at sort of a, sit at a chair and, and on a chair and eat at a high table. Instead, they sort of reclined on pillows and ate food off of a low table just sort of resting there, perhaps resting on one arm, laying on their side, and they would just reach over onto the low table in front of them and grab pieces of food and eat, and you know how enjoyable that is. You've been sprawled out on the couch with that pint of ice cream or bag of cookies, and you like that, don't you? Well, that's how they would eat on a special occasion in the ancient world, and that's exactly what they were doing here. Sort of recline, laying out. Of course, your, your, your feet are behind you. Your head is up towards the table and your feet are laying out. There and there you are. You're enjoying yourself and eating the meal and it's a wonderful time. Then something interesting happened at this dinner. Verse 3. As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. So this woman comes. Now, who is this woman? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. But you know, this is one of the great things about having the Gospels and quadraphonic stereos, so to speak, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John tells us the name of this woman, that it was Mary. Now, there are several Marys who followed Jesus. must have been a very common name for women in Jesus' day because there were a lot of Marys who were around him. But John tells us very specifically that it was Mary of Bethany. Bethany was sort of a suburb of Jerusalem, Set off a little bit to the west and a little bit to the north on a little hill, not very far away, within walking distance of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus was staying. He was eating dinner at the home of Simon the leper. And this woman who lived in Bethany, Mary, who had a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus, she was there together with Jesus. And she came with what? Notice it here. This woman came having an alabaster alabaster flask a very costly oil of spikenard. 
Spikenard is a very precious perfumed ointment. The construction of this sentence here in the original language gives us the idea that this was pure, unadulterated stuff. It wasn't watered down at all. This is the concentrated stuff. And it's in an alabaster flask. And we know from ancient history that the most precious oils and perfumes and ointments were held in alabaster flasks. And they were very valuable. Matter of fact, these were the kind of things that would be passed down as heirlooms from generation to generation and would have a sizable financial value. Matter of fact, you know, today when people want to make an investment, they put their money into stocks or bonds, into a money market. Well, back then you would put your investment money into something secure, such as just like an alabaster flask of ointment. It was small, it was compact, it held a lot of value, and you could easily sell it on the open market. So this woman brings this, this little flask, maybe about the size of your fist, maybe a little bit smaller. It, it would have like a neck with a glass bottle all enclosed there. And she brings it with her. And what does she do with it? Look at it at the end of verse 3. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now the idea there isn't that she just put a few drops on the head of Jesus, but that she poured the whole flask upon the head of Jesus. In other words, it was a sizable amount of oil. I'm not going to guess. Let's just say maybe half a cupful that she put upon his head and as it came down upon his head and I don't know, maybe she even sort of rubbed it into his head and it would be a very refreshing, a very extravagant gift for Jesus. Now, on the one hand, I want you to see that there was nothing unusual in this at all. You would probably think it very strange if you came into church this morning and the people who greeted you and gave you a bulletin said, here, let me bless you, brother. Here's half a cup of oil on your head. And they put some Crisco right there on your head. And just for a little, they rubbed it in there for you. And you might say, well, thank you very much. This is the last time I ever come to this church. (laughs) But in Jesus' day, this was not unusual at all. In one sense. Because very often when you came into somebody's house, especially for a dinner, especially as a guest, the host would come over you or have somebody in the household come and they would put a few drops of fragrant oil on your head. And those few drops of fragrant oil did a few things. First of all, it was thought to be refreshing. Most notably, it smelled good. Friends, this was the day before deodorant. The day before showers and regular cleansing and such. And let me tell you, they lived in a hot, dusty climate without air conditioning. There was some stink going on among people. And a little bit, let me put a, a few drops of fragrant oil upon the head made it a much more pleasant meal for yourself and everybody else around you. That wasn't unusual at all. What was unusual about the, what the woman did was a few things. First of all, it was unusual that she did this not when Jesus came into the door, but when he was already eating. That was unusual. Secondly, it's unusual that she used such expensive ointment, right? Thirdly, it's unusual that she used all of it. That's the idea behind the phrase that she broke the flask. She would break it to open it, and the idea there is that she emptied out all the contents on Jesus' head. Normally, you would just do a few drops, but she said, no, this is Jesus. I want him to have it all. Now, I want you to see that she took something that was sort of normal for anybody to do, anoint somebody's head with a few drops of oil, but in the way that she did it, in the manner that she did it, and with what she did it with, she did it in a spectacularly extravagant way. She said, this is my Lord Jesus. A few drops isn't good enough. 
a few drops of just any perfumed oil. That's not good enough. I'm going to use the best I have, and I'm going to give it all. If she would have just put a few drops of that precious ointment upon his head, everybody said, wow, she's using the good stuff on him. You know, she really loves him. But she says, that's not enough. I want to do it all, and I want to put it on his head. When she noticed that it wasn't just what she did that was notable, it's also notable how she did it. She put that flask of oil on her head, and I want you to notice that she did it herself. Mary made this gift all the more precious because she was the one giving the gift, and she gave it to Jesus through her very own hands. What do you think it would have been like if she would have said to her sister Martha, who was probably in attendance at this dinner, what do you think if she would have said, Sister Martha, I'd like to give this perfume to Jesus, but you know I'm a little busy right now. Can you break the flask and anoint his head with this oil? Would that have been the same? Not at all. I mean, the cost of the gift would have been the same. It would have been the still financial expenditure, the same amount. But it wouldn't have been the same at all, would it? It wouldn't have been personal from her very hands. In the same sense of love and devotion, she had to do it personally, herself. Friends, you know, our love and devotion to the Lord has to be expressed personally. You can't give somebody else the job of praising God on your behalf. Sometimes I think we think that way. We look at the people up here on the platform who, who lead us in worship. And sometimes we, we can get into the habit of thinking that they're up here to worship God for us. And our job is to sort of cheer them on. We'll encourage them as they worship God for us. That's not the idea at all, folks. They can't worship God for you. They can't do it on your behalf. No, quite the opposite. It's your job to worship God. It's your job to give Him your heart, to express your praise, your thanksgiving, your adoration of the Lord. That's work that only you can do for your own life. So we notice that this gift was remarkable for the way that Mary did it personally. But it's also remarkable that, according to our text here, it seems that she did it without a word. Mary was kind of the quiet one. She wasn't like Martha, her sister, who seems to be a bit of a talker. But Mary didn't come and announce what she was going to do. Sometimes we would be in the habit of doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to take a look at this alabaster flask I have, a very precious oil, spikenard. It's the good stuff. I'd like you to give it up for Jesus right now as I anoint his head with this oil. She didn't do that. She didn't describe it as she was doing it. She didn't say, wow, doesn't this smell good? Come on, everybody, let's, let's notice how I rub it into the head of Jesus and refresh him. She didn't say that. When she was done, she didn't say, how'd you like that? Everybody think I did a good thing here for Jesus? Does anybody else want to do something for Jesus? She didn't do Not a word. You see, she didn't care about what other people were thinking. She didn't care about what other people were feeling. She said, I want to do this for Jesus. She didn't announce what she was going to do. She didn't describe it as she did it. She didn't explain it after she did it. She simply did it. Then after she was finished, she, she didn't really look to the disciples and ask what their opinion was of it. Now, just because she didn't ask doesn't mean that they didn't offer. And that's what we read here in verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now again, it's helpful for us to turn to one of the other Gospels. I won't ask you to turn there on your pages. Maybe you just want to make a little mark next to the there. If you write in your Bible, you could write John chapter 12. 
Because in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, it describes the same incident, and it tells us the specific disciple who raised this criticism. And that disciple was Judas. Judas. Judas himself made this criticism. And the Bible tells us why he made it too. Let me read you John chapter 6, John chapter 12, excuse me, verse 6, where we read, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. Hey, you know what? We should have taken that flask and sold it. We should have sold it so that we could give the money to the poor. And Judas says, and to me, under his breath. He was a selfish man, a thief. But we shouldn't think that it was only Judas doing the criticizing. Look at it there in verse 5 again, where it says at the end of verse 5, and they criticized her sharply. In other words, Judas raises his objection, and all the rest of the disciples, yes, yes, amen, Judas. Well, we should have done something better with that. Maybe they thought they were being spiritual. Well, you know, wouldn't it be spiritual? Well, we'll sell it all and give it to the poor instead of this. No, no, they criticized her instead. On the one hand, don't our hearts go out to Mary at this point? She's doing such a loving, extravagant thing for Jesus, and she's being criticized for it. Sometimes we leave ourselves open to criticism when we love Jesus with great abandon. Have you ever been criticized or looked down upon for being a fanatic for following Jesus Christ? Someone whose life is just a little bit out of balance. You know, people say, well, you know, all that religious stuff is fine, but you're taking it too far. Friends, might I say that if that criticism has never been leveled against you, maybe you need to take another look at your life. Because for a lot of us, you know how we define a fanatic? A fanatic is someone who's more devoted to Jesus than we are. We're fine, but if you do more than we are, I don't like it to see somebody do more for Jesus than I do, and so you must therefore be a fanatic. And that tells me that I don't have to do what you're doing or what another person is doing. All the disciples joined in on this criticism, and they criticized her. And I wonder how Mary felt. I wonder if she felt the sting of it. Maybe there's a flush of embarrassment coming to her face. Maybe she's wondering, well, maybe I did do something wrong. But she didn't do anything wrong at all. Isn't it amazing here that that here you have the 12 disciples, these prominent followers of the Lord, and to find that even the prominent followers of our Lord can be wrong. They were wrong here when they criticized this poor woman Mary. They were wrong. I think it's interesting, too, to see how Mary reacted. What did she do when she was criticized by the disciples? You know, for many of us, if we were in Mary's place, when this criticism came, we would have said, don't you say that to me. I'm doing something good here. You've got no place to criticize me. Well, what about you, Judas? I think you're a big phony anyway. No, she didn't say any of that. She didn't say a word to defend herself. You know what I think she did? I think as the criticism came upon her, she just looked to Jesus. Friends, might I say that when you're criticized and when you feel the sting of that criticism, I believe that the thing each and every one of us should do is just simply look to Jesus. Now, you need to look to Jesus for two reasons. First of all, you need to look to Jesus because maybe your critics are right. You know, sometimes your critics are right. Sometimes people will say critical things about you, and they may even say a critical thing about you with a bad heart and with a bad motive, and they're still right. Don't you hate that? 
But sometimes that's the way it is, and you need to realize it. So sometimes your critics are right, and you need to look into the face of Jesus and ask the Lord, Lord, is this true? Is this something I need to take to heart? But then other times, as is the case right here in Mark 14, your critics are just plain wrong. So what do you do? Stand up and hoot and holler and defend yourself and make the counter accusations? No, you look to Jesus. How we need to do this, it's not easy to do. But God giving us strength will be able to do just this. And instead of wasting time defending ourselves, we'll just simply look to Jesus and love him. And say, Lord, you can take care of my critics. You can defend me. I don't need to worry about it, Lord. I can just give it up to you. And look to him and let the Lord deal with it. And you know what? The Lord knows how to deal with these things. We're going to see it in just a moment. But might I say before we leave... Verses uh, 4 and 5, I want to notice one more thing. I'm thankful for Judas's criticism. I'm very thankful for it. Do you know why? Because we would have never known how precious this gift was unless Judas would have come and given a dollar amount to it. Who would have suspected that this gift was actually worth 300 denarii? Do you know how much that is? That's about a year's wages for a working man. Now think about that. Maybe you just think yourself a common working person. You're not really poor, you're not really rich. Maybe you think of yourself in that way. Just a common working person. That's worth about a year's wages. That's what she laid out before Jesus. And now we stand back and we say, whoa. I mean, I know this was an extravagant gift, but who thought that it could be counted not in the hundreds, not even in the thousands, but the value of this gift in modern day terms would be counted in the Tens of thousands of dollars. And in one shot, she came and broke the flask and emptied it all over the head of Jesus for one time, for one occasion, to honor the Lord. And now we stand back and we say, you know what? Maybe it was a little bit too much extravagant. Maybe she should have sold some of that for the poor. But Jesus says, no. Look at what Jesus says here. Verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of as a memorial to her. Isn't it precious? Friends, what a contrast. Did you see what the disciples said about this precious gift that was given to Jesus? Look at the end of verse 4. Their evaluation of it? Wasted. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? There it is on the head of Jesus. Here today, gone tomorrow. You wasted it, Mary. And Jesus says, she didn't waste it at all. Not a single drop of this oil was wasted because it was done as a gift of dedication and love and devotion unto me. Jesus said she did a good work, a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. Matter of fact, Jesus says that what she was really doing was she gave this gift as a preparation for his burial. You see, Mary understood something. She understood that Jesus was going to die. And she says, I only have a few more days with him. He's going to die. I want to give him the most extravagant gift I can. Time is running short. And just as much as you would anoint a body that was dead for burial with fragrant oils and spices, she says, I may not have the opportunity to do it later. I'm going to do it now. 
And I'm going to give him everything I can. I don't want it to be too late. I want it to be now. And so I'll do it. And then Jesus gives her perhaps the highest compliment he could give. Did you notice that right there in verse 8? He says, she has done what she could. Isn't that what God just simply requires of us? No, God doesn't require of you more than you can do. Just what you can do. Now, for some of us, we hear that and we say, oh, isn't that good? Because I can't do anything. And so I guess that's what God requires of me, nothing. No, no, friends. You can do far more for God than you even suspect. You can give far more. You can serve far more. You can love far more. You can devote yourself far, far more than you even suspect in your mind and in your heart. Do you think this woman thought every day that she could give such a precious gift unto Jesus? What do you think if she would have gone to her financial advisor first? And said, you know, I'm trying to work out my portfolio here, and I wanted to take this thing, this, this investment for the future, and I want to break it over the head of Jesus and, and just let that fragrant oil run over his head. He would have said, lady, you're crazy. You can't do that. But she says, I can. I've done what I could. Isn't it remarkable that this precious, precious reminder is given? That's what Jesus just says. She's done what she could. And that's all the Lord expects of any one of us. And she came, and she anointed his body for burial. It seems like the disciples didn't want to think about the death of Jesus. It was like something they avoided. It was a hot potato. They didn't want to talk about it. But this woman said, I know he's going to die. So I'm going to anoint his head. I'm going to anoint his body for burial. And Jesus gave her a great compliment here in verse 9. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world. Isn't that a note of hope right there? Jesus says, I know I'm going to die, but you know, I know I'm going to rise again, and this gospel is going to go out through the whole world. That's a bold statement from Jesus right there. He knows the gospel is going to spread throughout the whole world. But then he says at the very end of verse 9, take a look at it here, that what this woman did will also be spoken of as a memorial to her. Well, we're fulfilling that right now this morning, aren't we? Aren't we making a memorial about what this great thing Mary did? And aren't we saying, Mary, what a beautiful example of love and devotion to Jesus. We recognize that. Well, what kind of memorial do you want to leave behind? And just a few days ago, I was in Jerusalem with my wife, and there we were. We are in a place called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount, and it would be a place that people would travel through from going either place. Jesus walked through the Kidron Valley many times. And there he is in the Kidron Valley, and you could see it in the days of Jesus. You could see it there today, a great tomb that's carved into the rock. You ask the guy, well, what's that tomb all about? And they'll say, well, traditionally they call it Absalom's tomb. But they know Absalom wasn't buried in there. They know because of the construction and because of the aspects of the tomb that it was really made about the time of Jesus. You say, well, look, it's just a spectacular tomb. I mean, it's tall. The thing must be 30, 40 feet tall, carved out of solid limestone. Just they're beautiful, beautiful there in the rock. You look at it, that's really remarkable. It's really striking. Who's buried there? Nobody knows. Now, can you imagine? Some very wealthy man in the days of Jesus saying, I'm going to make a memorial to myself. When I die, people are going to remember me. They're going to know who I am. They're going to know what I did. I'm going to make the spectacular tomb, the spectacular memorial for myself. You just wait till you see it. And so he goes to tremendous expense, tremendous effort. He makes this whole great monument to himself. Then he dies and his body's laid in there. And I suppose for five years, for ten years, everybody knew who was buried in there. How could you miss it? But now you ask the guides today, who's buried in there? They go, who knows? That's not much of a memorial, is it? But we still remember Mary of Bethany to this day. What she did was an everlasting memorial. 
Friends, what kind of memorial do you want to leave behind? You leave behind a memorial that's marked by love and devotion to Jesus Christ. It'll be spoken of throughout all eternity. It'll always be remembered. God will always remember it and his people will always remember it. So friends, you see this beautiful, beautiful example. Now, set in contrast to that are verses 10 and 11 with which we'll conclude this morning. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. So when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. What a contrast. You have the devotion and honor and love of Mary. And then you have the cruel, cynical betrayal of Judas. Many people have looked at Judas and what he does in this situation. They go, well, why did he do it? Well, what was his motive? Some people have said, well, Judas was hurt. His feelings were hurt because Jesus rebuked him over this thing of Mary and the alabaster flask and giving to the poor. Well, I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us that. Some people wonder, well, maybe Judas really had a noble motive in this. Maybe his motive was really to say, I know, folks, what our motive really is here is we're going to make Jesus play his hand. We're going to bring out the arresting authorities again. Then he'll have to display that he's the Messiah. And he'll show everybody that he's the Messiah in glory. You know, the scriptures don't give us any indication that's true. You want to know why the scriptures tell us that Judas did what he did? Because he wanted money. Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, makes it clear that Judas bargained with the religious leaders for the life of Jesus. He asked him this question. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? How much, guys? Make me an offer. Maybe we can work something out. The only motivation that the scriptures show us for what Judas did was pure, unadulterated greed. But let me say this. Whatever Judas's motive was, it was his motive. And God used a willing Satan who used a willing Judas. God ordained that these things would happen, but he did not prompt Judas to sin. There's no way that Judas could stand before the throne of God and say, well, I was just fulfilling your plan. No, it was his motive, and he did it out of his own free choice. We really have two choices here, don't we? We see the choice that Mary made. You know, there was no command that said, thou shalt anoint the head of the Son of God with oil uh, before his death. Mary did it all on her own initiative. Nobody had to tell her to do it. She saw the opportunity. She said, I love Jesus so much, I'm going to do it. Now, some of you may say, well, I love Jesus, David. Tell me what to do to show that I love Jesus. No, let the Lord tell you. He didn't have a law, a command that he gave to Mary. He spoke to her heart. Well, let the Lord guide and direct you and your beautiful, individual, personal expression of love to Jesus. But at the same time, notice, too, that Judas chose what he chose. There was certainly no command telling him to betray the Son of God. He did it of his own accord. Now let me conclude with a thought that I, I think is, is necessary to drive home, but I hope nobody takes it in a, in a too severe way. Honestly speaking, I wonder if there's not some of us here, we're not closer to Judas than we are to Mary. We're more likely to lift the eyebrow and to criticize others who worship God. We're we're more likely to, to wonder what's in it for me than we are like Mary, 
who will come with simple devotion and love and honor to Jesus and give him our all. Now, you know what I want you to see? Jesus loved both Mary and Judas. He loved them both. Isn't that amazing? We're going to see this next week as they sat down at the Last Supper. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus seated Judas at the table at the position of honor. Jesus gave Judas the special portion of the meal that indicated honor and blessing. Jesus loved Judas. He stretched out his hand to Judas and he said, I'm giving you a last opportunity to turn from your ways. Take my outstretched hand. But Judas refused it. Now, he loved Mary as well. There's no doubt about that. But maybe this morning you find yourself in the place where, honestly speaking, say, you know what? I might be closer to Judas than I am to Mary. You know what? The Lord still loves you. And he stretches out his hand to you this morning and says, take my hand. Draw yourself close to me. Let's get this right. Let's walk in this. Instead of having your life filled with with that kind of criticism or that kind of self-interest, Let's turn it around. Let's make it a different kind of life. He stretches out his hand to you this morning, whether you're like Judas or whether you're like Mary. His outstretched hand is there. The issue is, will you receive it? Will you embrace it? We take that outstretched hand of the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I want to love you. I want to devote myself to you right now. Let's pray and ask God to, to do this work in our heart. As I, as I pray right now, the worship team is going to come on up to the platform and we're going to spend some time after the message here in worship. Don't you think that's appropriate? We've just read about this marvelous devotion that Mary had for the Lord. Well, don't we want to show our devotion to the Lord? Haven't you kind of been itching as we've read this and said, well, Lord, I want to tell you how I love you. I want to express what I can. I want to break forth whatever vial of oil that I might have before you, and I want to worship you. Well, we're going to do it together right now for a few songs, but let's pray together to prepare our hearts for it. Father... I pray that each and every one of us here this morning would receive the love of Jesus. And Lord, as we receive that love, I pray that you'd put us in the place where we're, Lord, in the place of Mary and not Judas. You stretched out your hand of love to both of them, Lord, but Mary received it and Judas didn't. Well, Lord, make us like Mary. We want to embrace your love this morning and receive it and let it do its healing and its great work in our life. Oh, we love you, God. We ask for you to do this, this great change, this great work within us. Praise you, Jesus. Help us to worship you now with the devotion of Mary, to break open our hearts before you and let that fragrant oil bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.